Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. For many people, electricity is something that's taken for granted. We flip the switch and the light comes on. But for some living in rural and tribal areas of Arizona, that's not the case. When it comes to lack of electrical service, the Navajo Nation is one of the areas with the biggest gap in coverage. Estimates vary on how many homes there don't have access to electricity, with some reports saying the number is as high as 40%. Others put that number closer to 25%. U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm recently visited the Navajo Nation to highlight funding available to bring electricity to more homes as part of the Infrastructure Act. We spoke with her as she was leaving Kayenta, which is near the Utah-Arizona border. She told us the Department of Energy has a mission. It's to make sure that no community is left behind in our efforts to ensure that clean energy reaches uh, all pockets of the country. And that means the opportunity in all pockets of the country. So I'm just uh, right now left a meeting with Navajo Nation in Cayente to talk, to talk with them, for example, about the opportunity for tribal nations to be able to take advantage of the great resources that they are, are blessed with, not just to power themselves, which is very important for them to have um, uh, autonomy, energy independence, but also to be able to help with the president's goal of getting to 100% clean electricity by 2035. So Arizona has massive resources. You have the potential, solar potential alone, to be the second most uh, contributor to solar power on the electric grid, which lowers costs for people. And so it's a moment to be able to make sure that rural America, rural communities have um, a big part in that, really have an outsized part to play uh, relative to their size. But there's just a real opportunity for economic development as well as for helping to heal the planet. Up on the Navajo Nation in particular, there's a very high percentage of homes that don't have electricity, and as a result, a higher percentage of homes that don't even have running water. How quickly can all of this get in place to start solving that perennial problem? Yeah, I mean, one of the, we're on our way to visit a community that the Department of Energy just um, gave a $1.2 million grant to, to provide what is known as distributed power, microgrids, to um, the, the, uh, a community within Navajo Nation that doesn't have access to, to power, to broadband, or to energy. And so the solution that we funded will provide both, will, will allow there to be the use of the sun on a, in a, quote, distributed uh, way, meaning that you don't have to be attached to a centralized grid, but you can power yourself just by virtue of having solar panels and uh, electricity storage on site. So it's an example of the kind of projects that the, that the Biden administration, that the Department of Energy wants to fund so that communities all across the country in every pocket have access to the basic amenities, but through, again, renewable power. For smaller communities, be they tribal or just smaller rural communities, 
they don't have big governments uh, to deal with getting this money uh, from the infrastructure law. How difficult is it going to be for them because they may not have a big bureaucracy to deal with filing the paperwork and things like that? Yeah, it's a really good point because there needs to be, and this is what the Department of Energy has announced uh, through a whole slew of communities, we are providing technical assistance to access these grants. So, for example, there's a grant through the bipartisan infrastructure law that will go to, that will fund a billion dollars worth of of um, ability for communities to upgrade their grids, to install renewable energy, et cetera. But we, uh, along with that, we want to make sure that they have access to the technical assistance to apply for those loans. And I think a lot of people don't realize that there is complication when you when you navigate the federal government. I know people feel it when they navigate state and local governments, too. And so we want to make it easy, easy for local communities that are in rural areas to access that, for communities to access it. And so that's part of the strategy of the Biden administration. Is there money available for the long term, the upkeep of these programs, uh, be they solar fields or whatever, once they're put in place? Yeah, the, the bipartisan infrastructure law through which a lot of this funding flows will is in place for between, depending on the program, between five and 10 years. Now, once it's established, I mean, we want uh, communities to see this as an economic opportunity that they also get revenue from because of their uh, willingness to share power, such demand forward that they can be uh, commercialized so that there is, a, you know, that there is a permanency to them. That was U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm speaking to us from Cayenta, Arizona, on the Navajo Reservation. In the 1930s, the Rural Electrification Administration brought electricity to many underserved areas. But the success of the program, especially in tribal areas, varied. Dr. Leah Glazer, a professor at Central Connecticut State University, is the author of Electrifying the Rural West, Stories of Power, People, and Places. When she published the book in 2009, she worked for the Salt River Project and focused her research on southeastern Arizona, the White Mountains, and the Navajo Nation. I saw the whole eastern side of Arizona as representative of a lot of different places in the West because you have the um, the ranching farming community in southeastern Arizona. And in each of these areas, they're all a little bit mixed. And as you go, I started in the southeast and then you go up to the White Mountains and it becomes um, the, the native presence becomes more dominant as you go north. Um, and then, yeah, the White Mountains. Um, was probably the most diverse community. And then you get up uh, to the Northeast corner from Navajo and Hopi. And so um, in terms of how defining rural communities of the West, it represented those really well, um, specifically as defined by David Rich Lewis, who kind of a little bit before I wrote this had done a call for more rural history of the West. People might be surprised you know, the the average listener, uh, the average Arizona say, we have plenty of electricity. All my neighbors have electricity. Everywhere I travel has electricity. But when we look at those rural areas that you were studying, especially the tribal areas to this day, we find that's not always the case. Why is that? Well, a lot of it has to do with, you know, political, social and, you know, physical geography as well. 
Um, electricity has always been tied to capitalism. And so, and technology by its nature also needs, um, you know, to te technology when tied to capitalism needs to be feasible. And so the reason the government stepped in in the thirties to develop to, de um, to develop the REA to deliver electricity to non-urban people was because it wasn't feasible to deliver electricity if you're not all clustered living. Um, and certainly a lot of native communities to, to this day aren't clustered living. Um, at the same time, there's that big political inequity, inequity um, issue that uh, there's a lot of energy developed on tribal lands and literally the power lines go over them. I have a colleague, Andrew Needham, who also uh, about the same time I was writing this, he talks specifically about the electricity being generated on, and I talk about it as well, on tribal lands, but not for tribal people. Well, and Navajo Generating Station, which has now been closed up near Pace, Arizona, is the perfect example. It was called Navajo Generating Station. The coal for it came from, I think it was the Cayenta Mine on the Navajo Nation. But that power didn't go to the Navajo Nation largely. I mean, there's tremendous energy sources of all kinds. There's the coal, there's the uranium, um, there's even solar power that, and wind power that gets generated on, on tribal lands throughout the country. Um, but they're for the cities. Um, they've always been for the cities. Um, and, you know, it's not unlike how the water's distributed either. The water maybe want, have, might have gone through places, um, but it was for the cities. And so there's this real urban rural divide of which native people and uh, other rural people get really caught up in the inequity of distribution of um, technology, especially when, when tied to profit. In the 1930s, during the Depression, the federal government came up with the Rural Electrification Administration that you talked about to get more electricity into rural areas. Why did Arizona's tribal areas not get included at that time? Again, it was, um, it was part of this um, feasibility issue, and it, was, it wasn't about the government deciding where this stuff should go. It was, uh, they had to have applications. So these different cooperatives, these different peoples had to get together and make this application and argue that they were a good place for this to happen. And so you had to be uh, hooked into that. You had to be maybe part of a farm bureau already. And I guess I, I kind of argue that some of the native communities in Arizona who did get included in those cooperatives were out of necessity because they were in the way or they had the um, they had the resources. And so the White Mountains got electricity relatively early or in some of the Apache and the southeastern area because they needed to cross their land um, to build this grid um, because there wasn't, you know, that's that's how you got electricity through wires and poles. And so they had to be included in that way. It seems something you're talking about there, getting together, filing the paperwork. We're hearing that now about the Infrastructure Act, that a lot of rural communities, the energy secretary was up on the Navajo Nation within the last 10 days, trying to encourage people to apply for the money. 
But it's the same problem we were talking about now almost 100 years ago with the REA. It's paperwork and organization. It was a pretty odious process. You know, there was a lot of um, material they had to provide. They had to answer a lot of questions and survey a lot of people. This is how we're going to use it. In the case of the REA, the government certainly had um, a distinct idea of how electricity needed to be used. And most of that was domestic. You talk about in your book, it was up to local communities to decide what to do with the electricity when the REA was coming through to convince the REA to do it. Places like Cochise County and tribal areas, and that was not always maybe what the REA was was envisioning, shall we say. Yeah, the REA was kind of rooted in the country life movement a, little, a few years earlier that was about kind of equalizing, um, urbanizing everybody. Um, trying to modernize rural areas. They were saying that in order to, you know, enjoy the benefits of America, we need, everybody needed equal access to electricity. Um, But it was all about domestic use. And so in Arizona, at least in places in Eastern Arizona, they had certainly wanted it for domestic use, but um, really wanted it for electrical pumping in Cochise County to get that water out of the ground in a more efficient way. And that was more than getting enough load through just household use. They needed to, they needed electricity for other reasons. And they also argued that that should be part of what the REA takes into consideration when approving their application. And then on the Navajo reservation, you know, they ended up bypassing the REA altogether and just saying, well, you know, we're going to go by REA and government standards. They even hired the guy from the White Mountains um, over. And so they did everything the same as the REA, but they were in control of the delivery. When it comes to the Infrastructure Act now and the attempts by the Department of Energy through the Infrastructure Act to get more electrification to areas like the Navajo Nation and other rural areas across the country, Are we going to run into the same problems, do you think, that we did almost 100 years ago with the REA? Is it the issue of if we don't study history, we're doomed to repeat it? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I think that the benefits of today are we we are talking about really getting solar panels out there. Um, And then you don't need to worry about the grid. The grid was just so much a part of this. and, And we see in like what happened in Texas last year, um, when everybody's connected and everything is based on this connectivity, it didn't have to be that way. That was part of this big kind of model um, of of certain, you know, economic um, powers being in charge of all of that. But with solar panels, it's a lot more individual. you know, increasingly, I know here in, you know, where I am, when they, when you get solar panels, you don't have to use it all. Um, but, and, and it's connected to a, to a system that way. But um, now I think at least you don't have to worry about the topography anymore. And you don't have to worry about um, as much the grid, you can bypass the grid to a certain extent. Um, but in terms of um, the loans and some of these applications, you might run into similar issues. And I think it's really important. I guess my main argument for the book was that 
You need to involve the community and how the community wants to use and apply this technology. You really need to involve the community in this decision-making when it comes to the delivery of, of energy and the use of energy. It seems like it makes an argument for co-ops, especially in rural areas, versus the big companies that serve us here in Tucson and Phoenix, APS, Salt River, um, TEP, all of those. Yeah, especially, I mean, you know, certainly when the co-ops started, the cooperatives and the REA started becoming successful, there was this big attack um, from the, the independent companies, and they brought out all this Cold War rhetoric, which was sort of fun to, to look at, um, and that accusing cooperatives of being communistic. Um, but, you know, the irony is they, they weren't, first of all, they weren't taking money, they were paying it back. Um, and most of them did have paid it back. Um, and so it's a, it's a really interesting model, especially if the, you know, the bigger companies are unable to accommodate their needs. That was Dr. Leah Glazer, author of Electrifying the Rural West, Stories of Power, People, and Places. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We spent the first part of the show talking about electrification of rural and tribal areas. Now we turn to the state as a whole and the changes to where our electricity comes from. According to the Solar Energy Industries Association, or SEIA, at the end of 2021, 9% of Arizona's electricity came from solar energy, making Arizona fifth in the nation, a jump from 12th place. According to the Tracking the Sun study from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, in 2021, Arizona ranked behind only California in the number of residential and non-residential solar installations. Locally, Tucson Electric Power says as of last year, 28% of the power it generates comes from renewable sources, including wind and solar. But earlier this year, the Arizona Corporation Commission reversed its position on renewables and voted to not require utilities to generate an increasing percentage of power from renewables. ACC Chair Leah Marquez-Peterson joined us to explain what the commission did. Over the last three to four years, the commission has debated our energy rules, we called them, uh, and whether they should be mandates or goals and all the particular I'll call them guardrails we've put in place to ensure that the utilities are pursuing clean energy uh, and, and lessening the carbon impact in Arizona. So after many votes, uh, many iterations over all those years, at the very end, the final vote occurred and we did not support mandates. Uh, it did not move forward in that regard. But on the flip side, and I, I try to put the message out in a press release and videos, uh, I'm very much celebrating the role that the utilities have taken on. Uh, you know, Tucson Electric Power has committed to 70% renewable energy by 2035, which is around the corner. APS, our largest electric utility in Phoenix, 100% clean energy by 2050. So now what we're working on currently in the commission is our long-term planning process. Um, I'll call it our resource adequacy process and how we're ensuring reliability for everyone in Arizona. So we're continuing to work on those guardrails. So let's talk about that resource adequacy how do we make sure we all saw not that long ago Texas was having all kinds of problems? How do we make sure that, especially in the summer as it's hot this week, 
When I want that air conditioner to turn on, it's on. When I want that heat to turn on, which is sometimes even more important, it turns on. Yeah, this is one of the obviously top priorities for the Corporation Commission. We, we were created via the Constitution to ensure reliability, affordability, and that's primarily the issues that we work on. Um, when the California rolling blackouts occurred, when Texas had their freeze and, you know, unfortunately people were hurt or ended up dying from some of the issues that occurred in that state, I immediately had questions throughout the state from folks saying, how can you assure us, Commissioner, that this won't occur in Arizona? We had emergency uh, reliability summits where we brought all the utilities forward because, again, we're regulators and we're regulating a monopolistic industry. So we pull them together and say, okay, we want to go through the resources you currently have on hand and ensure that you've got adequate resources and a margin in case we have a hotter summer than we're projecting so that we're, we're protected. Um, and so we were fine last summer. You know, things continue to get tight as we continue to grow. Arizona is one of the fastest growing states in the nation. And we're hearing announcement after announcement of new companies, especially in the Phoenix area that are coming in. So we need to make sure we've got the you know, proper resource adequacy for all of that growth. So we're actually having a meeting this week uh, or next week on the 27th, April 27th, we're calling Summer Preparedness. We do this every season, summer, and we do it again in the winter to make sure that we have proper resources moving into the summer, where we're projecting, you know, the heat of the summer to be, uh, what kind of margin are the, the companies preparing for. And so we get into all of those details on the 27th and that is public. So the, the public can weigh in and Go to azcc.gov and watch our meeting if they'd like. Are you confident that TEP, APS, Salt River, you know, all the, the corporate utilities, if you will, will continue in this direction without those hard guardrails that um, had been talked about at one point, but you all decided not to put in? Um, are you confident that they will continue on this this renewable, sustainable pathway um, no matter what happens? I'm confident they're going to go in that direction because not only have they made that commitment to their ratepayers, but they've made it to their shareholders. These are private investor-owned utilities. Um, when I look nationally and meet with commissioners from other states, every state is talking about a clean energy transition you know, up to what percentage or how they, they uh, discuss that is different state by state. We all have different resources. But I do think our utilities will be going that direction. Uh, one of the great assets we have in our state is the Palo Verde Nuclear Station. We're actually right now the largest nuclear power plant in the nation here in Arizona, provides, you know, more than 30 percent of our energy in this state. And that's clean energy. So that's a great asset for the state of Arizona. But I, I do think the utilities will just continue in that regard. They're hearing that demand from uh, their ratepayers, stakeholders, large companies coming to the state who want that same kind of commitment. Since the energy secretary was here recently, the U.S. energy secretary, she was up north, Navajo Nation, Hopi Nation, talking with them. There's a lot of area still that doesn't have utilities. Um, is there anything that the state can do or you think as chair of the ACC isn't doing but should be doing to help with that process to ensure our rural areas, be it our, our native tribal lands or some of our rural areas, have access to affordable power or water as they need? 
you're right, Christopher. It's so important. Every community that wants electricity to the home and water to the home, we should be doing all we can to achieve that. Um, in the Navajo Nation, they have faced particular challenges because not only do they have homes that are not electrified or have direct water source, but they're also going through the, the clean energy transition. So when I was appointed to the commission in 2019, the Navajo Generating Station had just closed. So that had huge economic impact to the Navajo Nation, the Hopi Nation uh, next door. And we are still working on what that transition should look like. What's the role of you know, the state legislature, the governor's office, the federal delegation, and ultimately what we control, the ratepayer dollars, right? What role do we have in that transition? Um, and so we're in the middle of public comment sessions and really getting to that issue. Um, we don't regulate Navajo tribal utilities and they have their own entity, um, but certainly APS and TP, because they utilize resources from that area, play a big role in that conversation also. You mentioned sustainable energy transitions. We're seeing that everywhere. As you said, the big utilities are pushing more and more to that. What do you see as the long term? Do you see a day, maybe in our lifetimes, where Arizona, with our 300 days of sun, especially here in southern Arizona, is all renewable energy? That's a good question. I mean, I, I support 100% clean energy by 2050. Uh, hopefully that's in our lifetimes. <laughs> it's a bit bit out there, but um, you see so much renewable energy coming on the grid now. We see project after project in front of us. Uh, back in 2006, the commission had set a renewable energy standard or mandate and subsidized the solar industry because it was expensive at the time. Fast forward to today, that renewable energy standard is now expiring in 2025 in just a couple of years, and we plan to, to so exceed that, and the cost of solar has dropped dramatically. So um, we have, you know, I have lists in front of me right now that talk about wind projects and solar projects that have happened recently or even are currently under construction. Honestly, the, what we're facing now is that there's so much demand and supply chain challenges in the nation that some of our solar projects and others are getting delayed because of that. But they're still on the books and we're still preparing for renewable energy transition. Um, and the role of natural gas in that uh, discussion is also an important one to have. Natural gas isn't necessarily seen as a clean energy, though they're going through their own iterations in their industry. But we need a type of energy that will work at night when solar is not working or the wind is not blowing. Uh, and that's an important conversation we all need to be having also in the state. That was Leah Marquez-Peterson, the chair of the Arizona Corporation Commission. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Samantha Larned helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.